All About Agatha, the podcast in which we read and rank all 66 of Agatha Christie's novels. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week we are not reading a novel. We are reading a short story, The Adventure of the Cheap Flats. It was the third of Agatha Christie's <clears throat> short stories published in the Sketch magazine on May 9th, 1923. Well, let's get started. Insofar as there is a victim in this story, and there kind of isn't, we only have (laughs) Luigi Valdarno, who is a young Italian who works in some ambiguous capacity for a department within the American government where, for whatever reason, he has access to top-secret naval plans which go missing. And then Valdarno is found two days later, shot to death in New York, and da-da-da, he's without the plans. But... But, I mean, the real victim in this story, as the title of The Adventure of the Cheap Flat might tell you, are bargain hunters everywhere. The cheap flat is always <laughs> too good to be true. Yeah, so you could say that the real victims in this story are Mr. and Mrs. Robinson, this couple who lucked into a ridiculously cheap flat in fashionable Knightsbridge. The name of the building is Montague Mansions. It's, it's very well-to-do. They are basically bragging at a party to one Captain Hastings, among others, about what a great deal they've gotten on their place. Ultimately, we have to look at Mr. and Mrs. Robinson as suspicious because sure. they, you know, got a really cheap flat. And then, um, as far as suspects go, outside of Mr. and Mrs. Robinson, we have a Miss Elsa Hart, who we do not meet, but we hear about. And she's a young D.C. concert singer who was involved with the deceased Luigi Valdarno and who disappeared at the same time of his death. And American government officials have quote-unquote reasons to believe that she might actually be an accomplished international spy now en route to England. And then the only other suspects really are the vague notion of Italian secret societies, whether the Camorra or the Mafia, who are after this Elsa Hart for the missing naval papers. Valdarno, the one who was found dead, was likely affiliated with one of these secret societies. So perhaps they are trying to exact revenge for his murder. The reason why this story is so weird is that it's it's oddly structured in that the mystery is not apparent to anyone except for Poirot. He kind of he kind of ferrets out the fact that something untoward is going on when no one else is really aware of it. Well, it right? Yes, except they kind of all know that something untoward is going on, right? Because well, even they know that something weird is going on with because this flat that's so nice is being rented for such a cheap amount. But he's the one that, that magically gets to the bottom of just how nefarious it is, right? Right, right. So he, he's told the story by Captain Hastings, who is actually humble bragging, right? <laughs> um, He's humble bragging to Poirot about how clever he was at solving why these dinner party acquaintances got this cheap flat. Because it was even more, it was even weirder than just the fact that they got a, a flat for a really cheap rate. There were, was a couple who came, went into the flat right before them, and when they came out, they said, "Oh, don't bother because it's actually already been let. It's not available anymore." And they went in just because you never know, and they thought maybe they could 
pay their way to right, taking a premium. the flat if they had, yeah, pay a premium on the flat if it was really something that they wanted. They were basically being ruthless bargain hunters, as one has to be to get a decent flat, apparently, in London of 1923, um, or perha- perhaps Los York, Angeles of San 2016. Francisco, Los Angeles, <laughs> 2016, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. When they go up to the flat, uh, it is, of course, available, and they get it, and that's very, very odd, and someone at the party asks Captain Hastings to deduce why that would be the case, saying that, you know, calling him an expert in the solving of such mysteries. And he says, well, obviously they just went up to the wrong flat, the previous couple. That is what sets off Poirot when he hears a story. And then what sets off Poirot more is that he... Because probably what sets off Poirot is that he realizes that there's no way Captain Hastings could have actually <laughs> solved anything. So he's like, hmm, if everyone's thinking that, that you actually solved something, there must be more to this story. So I'm going to look into it. And also Poirot <laughs> apparently is like having a low caseload and I guess is just bored. bored. Yeah, sure. so he... Um, the other thing that um, piques his interest then is when he does go poking around, he finds out that, in fact, the Robinsons have been letting the flat for the last six months. Right. Well, he's told that the Robinsons have actually been in the flat for the last six months by a porter. And mm-hmm. Hastings is shocked to hear that because that must mean that the Robinsons lied to him at the party. And Poirot says, well... See, I you know I told you that there was that there was more to the story. So from there, they're sort of hooked, and both both of them want to get to the bottom of what's really going on here. That was the world as it seems to be. We've got this odd situation with this flat and this couple in it. What's going on? And then and now we kind of make our way to what is happening. So go ahead. Of course. There's something wrong with the flat. Um, you know, the Robinsons The Robinsons actually uh, propose at the dinner party that it might be haunted. And then right. everybody's like, well, no, probably, probably not actually haunted. But like, hmm. Um, Supernatural is never the answer in Agatha Christie. So it's not just that it's a cheap flat. It's um, like a real cheap Super flat. Cheap. So they're getting it for 80 pounds per year. And Poirot, he asks about the actual rate rates in Montague Mansions and the regular rate for a year for a flat is 350 pounds instead of 80. So right. they're like not they're not getting a little discount on this flat. They are getting it works out generally just staying in pounds. It works out to about little under 350 pounds a month today in today's pound and what it actually should cost is about 1500 pounds. That's that would still be, so that would still be a bargain for a like I a know. posh London apartment. <laughs> I know. Maybe the, maybe this is a, a small flat. I, it better be a one bedroom. And the the other thing we should have mentioned is that this flat has been available for a long time, at least according to the Robinson. So it seems to be that for a while there were a lot of couples being turned away and then for some reason the Robinsons were accepted so there has to be something specific about them that got them the flat. Right they must possess some particular characteristic that Mm -hmm. qualified them far more than everybody else who had passed through. Poirot also finds out from the porter that people with the last name Robinson have been in the flat for six months and um, although Poirot has never met Mrs. Robinson. He asked for a description from Hastings, and so when he addresses the porter, the description of 
Mrs. Robinson, matches Hastings' description. So where Poirot goes from that, his uh, deductive leap is that, oh, well, if they're looking for a particular characteristic in a person, the characteristic was, in fact, resemblance to a different Mrs. Robinson. Right. I suppose he could have deduced that the Robinsons were just lying. <laughs> that but, would have been, um, if you were going to do the Occam's razor, you would have thought that that would be yeah, the, you yeah, would have thought think that, that the, that would be that. Yeah, that the Robinsons were just lying for some, for some reason. But he at least just begins to suspect that there may be another set of Robinsons who had been in this flat for the previous six months and who essentially needed to replace themselves with new Robinsons who looked <laughs> somewhat similar. Right. <laughs> Which... <laughs> It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting intuitive leap, but you know, it's Poirot. So, uh, what could we say? And to be fair, like what, if that, if there weren't further clues and deductions that were supporting that, I'm sure he would move on and go on another path. But there is in fact a big supporting clue that he, that he finds for that theory, which is that Elsa Hart, the, uh, potential spy and thief of those papers, fits the description of Stella Robinson. She she has a similar appearance to the Mrs. Robinson um, that was described by the porter. Um, and she, in fact, disappeared from the United States six months ago with her brother in the direction of England. So, And, of course, the flat has been leased um, for the last six months. And for the last six months. Right. right. So, so things are kind of lining up where it seems like perhaps Elsa Hart has been posing as a Mrs. Robinson in this flat for six months with her husband, who is in fact her brother. The oddest thing, though, is that if nobody's been in the flat and they've been looking, basically they're looking for a decoy couple. Right. So that's the deduction. Right. And they just did it by generally making the flat really cheap and assuming that so many people were going to go through that eventually they would find somebody with the same last name that they had adopted and also who looked like them. They, they certainly took their time about it. And why didn't they just pay some unwitting person to assume the name of Robinson? Someone, you know, look for someone with a certain appearance and then give them a certain amount of money to assume the name of Robinson, not knowing that they could potentially be putting themselves in harm in harm's way. I would think that they could affect that plan within a week. Not well, six I suppose of trying I su- to find someone. <clears throat> I suppose that the danger in that would be that they would not have to um, go through a leasing agent, and so they would actually see Elsa Hart. Um, rather than sort of anonymously going on a house visit, right? I mean, yeah, I mean they could have uh, they could have hired a third party. I mean, it's just the point. It's a fair point that the time delay of their plan, I think, is a little problematic because oh, I think it's the whole very the whole point is that the whole point is that they're worried that that this Italian mafia is after them and going to kill them at any moment, and a decoy plan that takes six months to enact is not really much of a decoy plan, but, but there we are. They finally found, they finally found Robinsons who could take their place and the poor unwitting Robinsons who have moved in have no idea that they are actually sitting ducks, so to speak for a hitman for a hitman to come and exact revenge for the death of that, uh, of our murder victim. 
uh, Seldarno. As a quick aside, our um, last Christie was the man in the brown suit, and I think it is a little bit funny that both of the crimes really hinge on people having an interesting relationship with house shopping. Leasing agents play like a secret back role in in, in both works. Really a r- running theme here. It's more, it's kind of like so few flats, so much time. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. So the reckoning is a thing that happened. <laughs> um, I- yeah, I mean, and this is where, I mean, before we get there, it's like Poirot is, it's like he's identifying all these different pieces where you have It's completely circumstantial evidence. It's completely circumstantial, and the story itself is so much tell and so little show. It's you know, virtually like no show up until The Reckoning, in which case... Up until The Reckoning, <laughs> exactly. It, exactly, which is why The Reckoning itself is really more than just, I mean, The Reckoning is pretty much the whole story, because he tells us what was going on with Elsa and this Italian man who was killed and how she stole the papers and came and then he connects the dots with them hiring the Robinsons and essentially the mystery is solved and now all that has to happen is that Elsa and her brother slash husband, we'll just call her her, the brother husband. I like that. (laughs) um, They have to be brought to justice and the Robinsons have to be protected. So they... Do, uh, they go through quite an elaborate series of activities to make this happen. So Poirot... Let's go through it. Poirot lets a flat in Montague Mansions himself. I guess they're rolling in the private investigating income um, because... I guess so, yeah. <laughs> so he runs it for a month. They have a coal lift. <laughs> right. So, like, not quite... A, like, somewhere, I guess, between a garbage chute and a dumbwaiter. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I think it's like a, it's like a small sort of elevator space that stops on the on each floor and it's where you toss things get out rid of, of the coal yeah i think so used. i think so yeah, yeah. um and it has like a it has, much like a dumb waiter it has like a rope and pulley system right. and right. so parker and hastings decide to ride the coal lift so that they can go down to the coal lift of the robinson's flat and, well, again, still in basically like a garbage chute, they um, dismantle the lock on the coal lift to the Robinson's flat so that it can open from inside the coal lift. And thus, uh, mm-hmm. they can later, at a convenient time for them, break into the Robinson's apartment. And in the story, in the written, in the original version, they, they wait to break in at some moment when the Robinsons aren't there. Correct. Correct. Yes. So the opportune time is when the Robinsons are gone. They go into, you know, essentially this garbage chute, ride the coal lift, get to the Robinsons, get in through the Jimmy lock. Poirot has given Hastings his revolver. And then they wait for the intruder who Poirot knows is on his way to assassinate the Robinsons. And when he comes in, they... uh, Well, he very elaborately drills out the lock of the front door, which also leads me to believe who else is in the hallway? Wouldn't, like, neighbors possibly see a guy, like, dismantling a front door lock? But, yeah, apparently not. He comes in to the flat. And, of course, Hastings has no idea who he is, so Hastings... And Hastings is is narrating the story, as always. And he is very surprised when Poirot... Rather than tacking and then subduing him and hauling him into the police, whispers to him and gets into a car with him and Hastings to go to St. 
All Hastings knows is that he has to put the barrel of his revolver in the gentleman's back to basically force him to this car. So they go to this other house. Also, Hastings has no idea what what house this is. We have no idea. Poirot lures a a man who answers the door who's in his bathrobe out of the house. He then pushes inside of the house with the intruder and Hastings, closes the door, locks the man outside... And now they're inside the house with a woman who turns out to be Elsa Hart. Right. And And everybody's in a bathrobe. And uh, unfortunately, at some point in the transit, the captive has gotten a hold of Captain Hastings' revolver. So now he's hiding behind a curtain. And when Poirot makes the reveal to the woman who is Elsa Hart. The man who emerges is a very stereotypical broken English-speaking Italian gentleman uh, brandishing Captain Mm -hmm. Hastings' revolver and threatening to shoot Elsa Hart. Right, because this is our Italian who is enacting revenge for Elsa Hart having betrayed our original murder victim, Luigi Valdarno, and he tries to shoot Elsa, but... He is unsuccessful. Because Poirot has removed the bullets from the revolver. So, in other words, Captain Hastings was also brandishing a revolver this entire time. That was Sans. That had no bullets, bullets. and of course, he had he had no idea. And Elsa Hart is and her brother husband, <laughs> who was the man who had opened the door and been thrown outside, are delivered into the waiting hands of Inspector Jap and also Mr. Burt of the United States Secret Service. Turns out that Elsa Hart just very casually hands over the secret naval plans to Poirot, and they're sewn inside a black cat cozy, like a cover for a telephone. (laughs) (laughs) The plans themselves are so vaguely alluded to and so extraneous to the story. I mean, they really are a prototypical MacGuffin. It's just very clear that they don't have any specific purpose to the story. They're just the thing that we need to have a mystery surrounding. And it's a bit anticlimactic when we find them because that's it. it, Okay, great. It's true. And I mean, I think that that goes into a broader point. You know, we've talked about uh, Secret Adversary and the Man in the Brown Suit, um, like the sort of thriller Christie's, but mm-hmm. in general, anything involving you know Marple or Poirot are puzzle mysteries, and they even the short stories are essentially set up or present as puzzle mysteries. And in this one, things like the MacGuffin really kind of violate the rules. I think of the puzzle mystery. I mean, it's extraneous to a very large degree. You know, the actual mystery here is. Why is there a cheap flat? That is what the mystery is. Right. It's not. It's true. I mean, this really, it's more, you could argue it's a, it's a short story thriller. I don't disagree with that at all. It's just, just an odd choice when you're comparing it to Poirot short stories, because it just really misses the mark. I think on a bunch of Mm -hmm. um, points, I mean, I think the off screening quote unquote, of mm-hmm. most of the plot, yep. I found off-putting. It's a lot. Yeah, like we said, it's all tell. Yeah. It's, it's hardly any show. And the show is kind of ridiculous, too, which we can talk about in that Poirot and Hastings go to these insane lengths to lure this Italian 
that man, you know, this Italian gangster into the Robinsons' apartment. The whole riding the coal lift thing and fiddling with uh, the locks and like fiddling the, with the fact lock. that they yeah, they let just, an entire flat for a month for this. I mean, right? Yeah, it's just it's not very. Um, I mean, Poirot is usually a. His methods are simple and elegant. I agree. And, and this, this is, is not. This is so far from that. And yeah. I, it feels like an early story. <laughs> it does. But, I mean, we've been through some of the other short stories, which are, they're all written at about the same time, right? And, I mean. Oh, absolutely. And so I absolutely. don't, I, I found it a little uh, disconcerting even, especially especially how the spy plot is presented, where basically Poirot says to Hastings, almost literally he says, I know you like your movies so much, like, let me tell you a story. And then he just narrates over the course of two or three paragraphs that he just happened to be chatting with Inspector Jap, and Inspector Jap tells him this detailed American scandal about a woman who is, of course, Elsa Hart. Involving Elsa Hart. And the, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, so he he's told the entire story by Inspector Jap, and then he recounts that. So now it's like, what, a third-hand story? To Captain Hastings. Yeah. And the biggest thing of it is Poirot has never met Stella Robinson, the woman from the dinner party. And at that point in the story, he uh, presumably has never seen or even seen a picture of Elsa Hart. And so he's making these assumptions based on, I mean, virtually nothing. It's a weak deduction for sure. The clunkiness of, oh, let me tell you a story reminded me of when we were going through the murder on the links. And there's that whole chapter where Poirot says, oh, you know, this case reminds me of that case from a long time ago. Let me tell you about that case. Right. And then we're just spoon-fed that case. And we can talk a little bit about the televised adaptation of this. They do a much better job. Because they do a much better job and an even better job than in the Murder on the Links adaptation. We had that newsreel, Mm -hmm. which was still, you could argue, slightly clunky, but at least a little bit more interesting. Uh, than than the in the original novel, but here the episode, and we should just specify that this was episode seven of the second season, and it aired in early 1990, 18th of February on 1990, and the episode opens up on Inspector Jap, Captain Hastings, and Poirot all watching a movie together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's charming, and in, in they're watching. It's a gang. It's, it's really a gangster charming. film. They're, it's a gangster film. It's a, it, they specifically mention the film. It's it's a James Cagney film called G-Men, which came out in 1935 in keeping with the setting of, of all of these episodes all around the, the same years in the mid-30s. And it's just like they're out for a night at the movies, at a movie palace, which I think is really adorable. And Jap and Hastings are totally into it. Poirot is in hell. He hates it. He actually closes his eyes by the end of it. And then they have this very organic conversation coming out of it where Poirot critiques American crime fiction. He says the reason why he didn't like the movie is that he doesn't care for the type of detective who shoots first and asks questions later. And then Hastings says that the FBI, who had been featured in the film, you know, they're the best. And Jap sort of gives him a look and Hastings realized that he insulted him and tries to take it back. And then Jap says, well, actually, I'm going to be working with the FBI soon on a case. And then in that way, he brings up this case, which is brought up much less organically and more clunkily in and much later also in right. the, the story. So we're getting a lot of the backstory out 
in a seamless, organic, and early way already in the episode. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely one of those episodes that builds on the short story and just takes it further and makes it better. Once again, we come to the problem of having Captain Hastings narrate them mm-hmm. in the short stories because, you know, there are certain limitations in that. And it's much easier here when also Inspector Jap is such a bigger character in the adaptations. And, you know, it's funny, we're not yeah. we're not doing the adaptations in chronological order. But in the first few right. seasons of the show, he and Miss Lemon are significant members of the cast in all of yeah. them. And where, where they're not, I mean, Miss Lemon doesn't even appear in these, but Inspector Jap is either mentioned secondhandedly or he shows up at the end or he shows up in sort of a weird capacity versus being Philip Jackson, much more fleshed out character in the series. And so I think that having him as an entry point and having him explain it and having Kate Hastings be involved with that initial explanation is so much a better launching point for the story. And of course, the, these episodes are always better for having Miss Lemon in them because Pauline Moran oh, is amazing. Um, there's, so there's this great scene. Her eyebrows. Oh, her eyebrows. Her, eye, her eyebrows, the the curls on her the sides of her face I just everything about her is her face is just so expressive she doesn't have that many lines but she has such a presence whenever she's in a scene through well, she has great her eyes. reaction shots yeah. great reaction shots yeah yeah the and she has a really good eye. role and she has a really good role in this episode she does well there's this great scene where Poirot sends her to a nightclub where Elsa Hart is hiding out as a lounge singer. She pretends to be writing for a women's magazine. She makes her way in, and the nightclub owner is really gross and hitting on her and just disgusting. And Can I also point out, uh, not to interrupt, but sure, can sure. I also point out that the last part, I guess we did as a novel, like Murder of the Lynx, we also have the adaptation nightclub singer element. And I think it's really interesting that somebody who is trying to be like on the lamb, but in both cases they chose to make her a nightclub singer which seems to be like a really obvious choice if you're trying to be undercover like why would you be in public but although she is she is identified in the story as being a um a singer of some sort isn't she a concert singer, quote a concert unquote. Singer, but it doesn't. Right. It doesn't say that she's doing it in London. That's what she was doing in DC. Right, right. Yeah, no. They go. I actually had that thought too. That they really, and I think they do it because when you're trying to evoke the 30s, nothing is easier than those. You know, these sort of lounge singers, sultry lounge singer scenes, which they yeah. they do very well. And there are there are they a do. bunch of them in in this episode. Yeah, I mean, Miss Lemon's outfit. You know, I thought she looked like. Carmen San Diego, but even better. <laughs> um, she was nothing fantastic. wrong with that. There's nothing also, wrong with that. <laughs> also, I just like that she's like a reporter for like a ladies' magazine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like she would be a really good reporter for a ladies' magazine. Like I kind of feel like Pauline Moran manages to convey not only a flawless sense of humor, but also effortless competence. I just get the sense that Miss Lemon is good at 
anything she wants to do. Like, if Miss Lemon wanted to be a detective, she might be a better detective than, than Poirot. Even though he doesn't realize it, we realize it. I just love her, the way that she brings that character to life. As a kid, she was my favorite part of the show. I just adored Miss yeah. Lemon so yeah. much. Um, and I think I think the really funny thing is that even though Hastings is so much more competent in the adaptation than he is in the mm-hmm. stories, Miss Lemon, every time she's given like something to do, she's just so much better at it than Captain yeah. Hastings. Yeah, it's really true. One other thing I appreciated about the episode was that, again, we talked about how all the telling and in and, and the original story was clunky and got a little tiresome. And in the episode, when Poirot has to tell the gangster backstory of what happened with Elsa Hart and this Italian man who she double-crossed and, and killed, he we get, yeah. we get, of course, the backstory visualized, and they tell it as if it's part of the movie that we saw at the beginning of the episode like when she shoots him the sound of the gunshots are extremely canned just like the sound of the gunshots in the movie itself and the way the lines that they're saying to each other and the way that the actors are reading the lines is arch and it's not as grounded as the lines in the rest of the episode this is it baby take it nice and slow Luigi, you made it all too easy. Carla, no. Goodbye, lover boy. And it's just, again, another way that the episode is just having fun with the telling of the story in a way that just enhances the original version. I just, I appreciate all those tonal tweaks that they make. I definitely appreciate it. It's a very entertaining episode, I think. For a story that I had some problems with. All the problems with the story are, they're all still there in the episode because they don't really fundamentally change anything about it, but they fill it with these interesting tonal irregularities and humorous tangents and interesting character moments, stuff like that. So you're just diverted the entire time and you don't, you're not as focused on the weirdness of the story. Right. And I mean, again, we, I think we have to mention this every time and maybe it's redundant, but I feel like it's not because I feel like it has to be mentioned. It's that the, um, Chemistry between the main cast, between Polly Moran and David Suchet and Hugh Frazier and Philip Jackson, is so palpable. Yeah. Like, they play off of one another so yeah. well that at some level you're not going to pick it apart because they just sell it. They sell it on an emotional level that doesn't exist in the story. Yeah, and to give the and to give the writers their credit too, there's this one moment that I really appreciated because I'm now so attuned to the differences between the Poirot Hastings relationship in the episodes versus the original stories. And there's this one right. great moment where um Poirot is fiddling with the lock. The Robinsons are actually there when that happens, so Hastings has to distract them with uh, idle chatter, which he's kind of good at, although he starts asking about different kinds of brushes for combing woodwork. It's like, it barely makes any sense what he's saying and the Robinsons have this. And by the way, Mrs. Robinson is played by Samantha Bond, who a lot of people know as... Money as, Penny. And, and in Downton Abbey as well. They're just like, 
what is happening? And then you cut to Poirot and he drops some of his tools and Hastings has to keep the Robinsons from investigating right away. And he says he'll go do it. And Poirot just gets away in the nick of, in the nick of time. And in the next scene, they're walking away and Poirot acknowledges like, wow, thanks. Thanks for saving me in there. Uh, who's that? They came from the kitchen. No, I didn't hear anything. I'd better take a look. Allow me. Detective's prerogative. You never know. Might be one of the ghosts. Wind blew it open, I expect. I should keep this bolted if I were you. You never know who's about. I don't know what the Robinsons would have said if they'd seen the foot of Hercule Poirot disappearing into the twilight of the back stairwell. I am indebted to your quick thinking, mon ami. And the Poirot of the stories just would never make that mistake. He's too expert to ever drop anything. He's too perfect. And it's just really nice that it's a genuine, it's a genuine moment between them when Poirot says, yeah, you really did help me. And, And he's not in any way belittling Hastings. I love those little moments. I do too. And Hastings in the story would also never be able to improvise right. that well. Right. The only other thing that I wanted to mention about Hastings, it doesn't really apply to the adaptation, but it was something I noticed at the very beginning of the story is that he basically says that he is chronicling Poirot's cases. It says, so far in the cases which I have recorded, that's the first line. And then he says, in the events I am now about to chronicle, yeah, a remarkable chain of circumstances, which is a very Watsony thing. Well, and by the, and by the say, way, Watson is once again. I mean, it's it's a it's a slight Holmes reference where when he's bantering at the party, Hastings says, "Obvious, my dear Watson." But Holmes still right. Holmes still does get glancingly referenced a lot in these stories and the novels I've noticed, and, I, and you know that's just more of a it's Sherlock Holmes, and obviously it's just a reference people are going to get. It's not that important, but it's just interesting that it does keep on happening. No, but I, I did think it was interesting that we hadn't seen this in a while. The idea that for whatever reason Hastings is chronicling Poirot's cases, which. You know, at no point does that seem to come to anything. And where is he chronicling them? I think is an interesting, yeah. an interesting Sorry. question. But I just, I, I just, I thought it was curious that that was the first line in this one. Yeah, that's true. The one other thing I, I did want to bring up, I did also like how in the episode there is a sort of prevailing theme throughout of American crime fiction versus British detective fiction, and that American crime fiction is shoot first, ask questions later, as Poirot says in the beginning. And Poirot's methods, even though he is you know running up and down coal lifts or staircases, by the end the Amer the FBI guy still wants to use guns, and he he makes a comment like marveling at how Poirot was able to do that without even a shot. No one actually gets shot. He removes the bullets from the gun and Poirot was kind of proud of that. And I just, it was more of a consistent theme in the episode than it was in the story, even though it's absolutely there in the story. But I like, I appreciate it that they made that a consistent theme. I completely agree. And I think the line is actually good. The, The Italian is trying to shoot the gun. And in the story, Poirot says, 
Never will you trust your old friend, Hastings. I do not care for my friends to carry loaded pistols about with them, and never would I permit a mere acquaintance to do so. No, no, mon ami. I do like that. I like the fact that he is appalled by the level of violence. Right, right. It was refreshing. I think that's it for this short story. Next week, we are going to be tackling The Secret of Chimneys. I guess we're going to find out a lot about flu cleanliness (laughs) and um, chimney sweeping. There's a a special Santa chapter where Santa, you know, is maybe that that famous monologue of Phoebe Cates' in um, Gremlins. Definitely, we could definitely do that. And also, um, you know, the Darwin Awards people for right. uh, people who try to break into houses through chimneys. Yep. Maybe, maybe we'll get some of that. Yep. It could be a very exciting, It'd be very, very episode. exciting. Can't so wait. You will not want to miss that one. <laughs> so hopefully, we will see you all next week. And in the interim, please look us up on Twitter at All About the Dame. The same at on Instagram and email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. And most importantly, please give feedback on whatever you are listening to this on, whether it is SoundCloud or Stitcher or iTunes. We very much appreciate any and all feedback. Thank you. Bye. See you next week. Bye. See you next week. Mm-hmm.